Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 131 of X-Lapsed, where we have arrived at the penultimate chapter of this seemingly endless crossover event here. Uh, today we are talking about Excalibur, volume 4, number 15. It's out of January 2021 cover date. The story is X of Swords, chapter 21. Written by Teeny Howard, with art by Mahmoud Asrar and Stefano Caselli. Colors by Sonny Go and Rachel Rosenberg. Letters VCs Clayton Cowles. Designs Tom Muller. Head of X is Hickman. Edits Beasel White Sabolski. Cover price $3.99. And this one went on sale, just like uh, the one before it and the one after it, on November 25th of 2020. Let's get right into it here. We open with a blank quote page, which means that in the collected edition, there are going to be two blank quote pages in a row because. I believe we ended the last issue with a quote, so that doesn't seem like great pacing or planning, but yeah, we'll get there. <laughs> we'll get there. Uh, now, this is a quote from Saturnine, and it's about magic uh, with a C, so like the concept, you know, mystical mysticism, not the girl with a K. Whatever the case, um, as is uh, the usual for me, magic is not terribly interesting. And that's magic with a C, and a lot of times of late, magic with a K as well. So, let's just move on. We got our double-page spread of credits, then our roll call, and it's uh, it's a long one. Uh, Saturnine, then our Krakoan champions, Magic, Kid Cable, Cypher, Storm, the X'd-out Betsy Britton, Captain Avalon Apocalypse, and the X'd-out Gorgon. Then we have our Rocky champions, War, the White Sword of the Ivory Spire, an X'd-out Creepy Summoner, Red Root the Forest, Solemn, and X'd out Death, so I guess uh, Storm did kill him in, uh, what was it, Sevelith? Whatever the uh, zombie realm of Otherworld is. Also, Iska the Unbeaten, Bay the Blood Moon, Annihilation, and Pog er Pog, lest we forget. Now, our actual comics content begins, and, uh. Huh. Now tell me. Would it be a discussion of Excalibur if I didn't begin by suggesting that, uh, hey, maybe I missed an issue? <laughs> because, uh, well, um, we've got a big, huge battle between our heroes and Amenthi demons right here. Uh, okay. I suppose we could draw a point A to point B thing here. You know, Genesis did reclaim the Annihilation Helmet at the end of last chapter, which might have been like a... I like dog whistle effects on the demons, but really, this is just quite jarring here. Last we saw, she put on the helm. Here we are in the midst of battle. I mean, the demons are just here. And it looks like we're in the middle of a battle, battle rather than one that's, you know, just started. Also, Saturnine's fish-faced aide is rushing to her Wynus's quarters. 
Now, on the battlefield, Annihilation is ranting and raving. In her sort of kind of unpleasant-to-look-at uh, black word balloons here, it's a little, uh, little... Eh. Now she goes to strike down her husband Who's kind of just standing there uh, However Storm manages to blast her with lightning Before she can land the blow Brian Avalon, which could be the name Of a 60s era crooner Attempts to get A's attention Annihilation will sick more And more demons on them with a seemingly Never ending supply And Brian suggests that it would be in the Kirkoan contingent's best interests To maybe back down, maybe move out uh, Doug Ramsey hears this, and he suggests that they cannot leave his new bride behind, which really gets under Apocalypse's skin. Next, we shift over to the other camp, where the White Sword tells his fellow champions that, uh, well, this is uh, no longer his fight. He did his part, he held his own in the contest, and now he's done. I mean, we gotta remember here, going back to the first time we met the White Sword in that flashback, He's always hated the Amenthi, right? He spent thousands and thousands of years fighting them with his hundred every single day. So really, stands to reason he wouldn't want to aid them now, right? So he and his hundred warriors leave. They head home to revel in drink and victory because, I mean, I guess he did win all the competitions he was in, which was all he was really uh, expected to do. By this, Iska is quite displeased. Well, I hope Iska's ready for that other shoe to drop, because uh, Bay the Blood Moon charges off to be at the side of her new hubby. We shift scenes over to the Citadel, and the priestesses are fretting, and the fish-faced woman hands over a bucket of what looks like broken glass to Saturnine. This is, of course, the Betsy Bits, which sounds like it would be a most unpleasant breakfast cereal, though, uh... I guess your mileage may vary. We all have our fetishes, right? Uh, back to the battlefield. The heroes are hacking and slashing through the Amethi demons, and hey, at least this gives Brian Avalon the opportunity to actually use his sword, right? I mean, we spent an awful long time collecting those things. Now, Apocalypse suddenly comes to the revelation that, uh, hey, there's probably no winning this battle. I, I mean, how do you win a battle against an unending horde? To which... Captain Avalon's all like, yeah, no duh, I tried telling you that a few pages ago. Then, Bay the Blood Moon zips past and yoinks up Cypher. The gimmick here is that she's not joining with the Krakoans, she just wants her husband to be with her. Now Apocalypse goes to attack Bay, but is talked out of it by Doug. Bay then uses her Doom Note power to send a flying. We shift back to the Citadel. Now, Saturnine is engaging in her glass jigsaw puzzle, and she's probably wishing that Gorgon didn't bite it a couple issues back, because, if I recall correctly, he proved to be pretty good at putting together puzzles. I believe he and Magic won a whole competition about it. Now, Saturnine has the Dragon, Sh Dragon Shogo with her, uh, as she has for much of the second half of this event. Um, the deal here is, I mean, Shogo's dragon fire can melt reality. We know that, right? And so... Perhaps once this Captain Britain jigsaw puzzle is put back together, maybe she can use her powers or a spell, and maybe his fire can intermingle here, and something productive might come out of it. I, I'm really trying here to make sense of this, but we will get there. Back to the battlefield, and there's more fighting. Magic breaks away from the front line to fetch her pal, Doug. Then, Jubilee and the Green Priestesses join the fray, because of course they do. It's not like we don't already have enough characters to keep track of, right? 
I guess uh, Teeny Howard's got to make sure she gets as many Excalibur characters into this issue of Excalibur. To which I say, it would have been cool if that kindness had been extended to some of the other books in this crossover. Now, Jubilee is here because not without my son, which I guess stands to reason. Really can't falter for that. The motivation is sincere. Next, we're off to a nine-panel grid, which tells us that this page is haughty, intellectual, and important. In it, Cypher manages to convince Bay the Blood Moon to officially switch her loyalties to the Krakoan side. It would seem that the power of love is strong. Um, maybe too strong, considering. But uh, anyway, Bay joins up. And the Iraqi side is not too keen on this because, you know, they, they really shouldn't be, right? Uh, Annihilation then rants some more, and the panel goes to black. We shift to somewhere. <laughs> um, we get a shot of... Assumedly, Betsy Britton hammering at a forge while Saturnine places the last shards of glass into her mosaic. You see, she does so with a love spell, which I think she expected to result in the revelation that beautiful Brian was the true Captain Britton. Thing of it is, when all's said and done and the last piece is put in place, the mosaic very clearly depicts Betsy, or someone who really, really looks like Betsy, in the role. And as you might imagine, her royal wyness is quite upset. Now we wrap up our penultimate chapter with uh, the reinstitution of the Captain Britain Corps with a Betsy Braddock coat of paint, which is basically to say they all have purple hair. Oh joy. Um, we leave off with an info page, and it's Saturnine's love spell, which I dare not read aloud, lest I make you all fall madly and deeply in love with me. You're welcome. That's the end here. Next episode is the end, the official end, X of Swords, Destruction, and boy howdy, it can't get here quick enough. But let's talk about this. I want to start the discussion of this issue by asking a question. Is anybody out there listening, have you ever read DC's The New 52 colon Future's End? It's, uh, it goes back about five or six years, but it was a weekly series. DC, you know, they're, they're big on their weekly series every once and again. They get that wild hair to, to do them, and uh, this 2015 was one of those times. So, Future's End, a weekly series, ran through the summer of 2015 until the spring of 2016. And it was very bloated, very cluttered, and uh, while it started out with a fairly simple and easy-to-follow premise... It, there was time travel, but it was linearly told. Uh, it was easy to follow early on. It eventually found itself way overwritten, to the point where it was literally hard to follow, hard to read, week to week. I mean, all you had was seven days between the issues, and it's kind of like these issues of Excalibur. It's like, did I miss something? It was very, very strange. So, all told, it ran for something like 45 weeks. And I mean, this was a highly promoted weekly series, and it went on for nearly a year, so you might think there were going to be, you know, some pretty big ramifications, right? I mean, why invest all that time, all that effort, all that talent into, into and all that hype into something this labor-intensive if it's not going to really, you know, do anything? Like, there has to be a reason that this thing existed, right? Well, uh, when the dust settled, it turned out that the whole endeavor was to set up a new, ongoing Batman Beyond series. 
And I, I mean, a lot of us thought that this series was going to lead to a huge shakeup or an interesting new status quo. I mean, this was at the end of the New 52 era where it was kind of stagnant, kind of stale, and DC was in dire need of something new. But no, <laughs> we got a new Batman Beyond ongoing, in quotes, that ran like six issues before DC decided to, like, you know, uh, crap can the entire uh, universe and uh, reboot into Rebirth. So, uh, much ado about nothing. Let's jump across the street, or across the country now, to Marvel. We've got X of Tens, right? We've devoted 21 chapters so far, with one more to come, plus over a half-dozen Path 2 and Prelude issues. We have the free comic book day issue. And was it all really to reinstate the Captain Fregan Britain Corps? Eh? I, I mean, I get that this... Like, the germ of this idea was an Excalibur story that they bloated to usurp the entire line, but really? Is that is that the whole purpose of this? To reinstitute the uh, the Captain Britain Corps? With Betsy as the, the showpiece rather than Brian? I mean, talk about the journey not being worth the destination. Though, I mean, in fairness, we will still have to see what else happens in Destruction, but in a vacuum, and as of right now... Eh? I mean, what it really comes down to, at least from my point of view here, is that this is the Betsy coronation, right? Um, to me, this feels like one of those things where the writer is trying over and over again to prove that a character is worthy of their role, okay? Where normally, we comics fans are much... There were a much easier group to win over than creative and editorial seem to think we are. <laughs> they seem to think we're the enemy a lot of, in a lot of these cases, but... Let's go back to the beginning of this volume, right? We open this volume of Excalibur with Betsy becoming Captain Britain. And you know what? That was good enough for me. You know, Betsy's in the role. That's great. Betsy's Captain Britain. Totally fine by me. But ever since then, it's been like Teeny Howard can't take yes for an answer. And every single story becomes about Betsy proving that she's worthy of this title. And that only makes me begin to think that Maybe she's not, <laughs> you know? I never had doubts that she could fill the role, except that our creative team can't seem to help themselves from filling my head with doubt every single time out. I, it's, it's just take yes for an answer. We are a lot easier and more supportive a, a group, uh, we comic book fans, than uh, we're given credit for. And uh, stop treating us like we're antagonists, and stop treating us like we are... Uh, yeah, we could be nitpicky, but we're not we're not hatefully nitpicky. Give us a little bit of credit. Let's put a pin in that. Uh, since again, in fairness, I, I haven't read Destruction yet, so I don't know where it's headed. There, this I mean, this could all be an illusion. This could all be symbolic. It'll all remain to be seen. Instead, let's talk a little bit about pacing. Pacing is something that we've talked about here and again during our X of Tens journey. Um, now. This story opens sometime after X-Men number 15. Stands to reason, right? You'd think that, being a, at least in theory, tightly knit crossover event, that I wouldn't have those pangs of, did I miss an issue when opening this comic? But I did. <laughs> I mean, we're suddenly in the middle of a battle with demons. Eh? Very jarring. I feel like a cold open is something you can get away with if you're not 
like literally following up on the same setting, right? We've had issues here where we end on a cliffhanger, but then we start at Krakoa with Cyclops thinking about what it means to be an X-Man. That works because we're actually shifting the scene. We don't have to know what's happening where we left off. We're going to assume that we're going to get there. And we did. Here, though, we end with Annihilation picking up the helmet. Then we start in the middle of a battle. And I mean, like I said during the synopsis, we could easily do a point A to point B. It's like, okay, well, maybe it was, maybe her donning the helmet was a sort of dog whistle for the demons. And it's like, okay, this is the time to strike. But it just felt so um, sloppy. So it felt sloppy, felt disjointed. I mean, but I get, like I said, I guess it wouldn't be an issue of Excalibur if I didn't think I missed something. So I'll give it to them for uh, consistency in, in that respect here. Let's talk a little bit about the ending. Um, now, the ending was a little uh, hard to follow. Uh, the only thing I understood here is that we got a whole bunch of goofballs in Captain Britain costumes um, with, you know, purple hair. Uh, was the purple-haired girl hammering at the forge, was that Betsy? I mean, it almost has to be, or at least it's a Betsy. Is it our Betsy? Uh, who knows? Like I said, all of these Captain's Britain or Captain Britons or Captain's Britons, they've all got purple hair, right? So do we assume that these are all alternate versions of Betsy, like they had been with Brian back in the long ago? Is that just... Is this just the coronation of Betsy as the centerpiece of of the Captain Britain Corps? I don't know. Is there a Captain Britain movie in the works that I don't know about, and they really, really need to get Betsy in the role so she so we can have uh, her on the big screen? I, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe. Uh, I guess we'll uh, we'll have to see. But uh, overall, uh, this was a bit confusing. Didn't really feel like a penultimate chapter. Um, feels like we're still getting these new concepts thrown at us, where. We really should be starting to narrow the focus down. Uh, at least in my opinion, we should. This sort of stuff should have happened already, right? These bigger, these big ideas and uh, the introduction of new concepts and everybody just showing up. Um, that should have been done already. This should. We should be really narrowing our focus here and, and making it so we can easily slide into our final chapter and not. Because uh, it's so weird that this is a twenty-two part. Story with over a half dozen issues of preamble, and as we're getting to the end, it feels more and more rushed. It's like you didn't have enough time. <laughs> I mean, we're filling 500 pages here. Now it's when we decide that we need to start integrating these concepts and ideas at the very, very end. Uh, pacing really, really, really could have used some work here. I suppose one last thing we could talk about is the. Uh, the Iraqi champions who uh, switched sides or just uh, left. I really like that as an idea. Uh, the White Sword here, we've we've talked a lot about the White Sword over the past several episodes here. He has no loyalties to the Amenthes. He hates the, the demons. He's fought the demons. He's lost his men every single day to the demons, so why would he help the demons, right? Makes perfect sense for him to, uh, for him to leave. He did his part. He only agreed to do what he did, and he already did it. So I, I really like that as a uh, as a beat of his character. 
you know, um, really feels right. It feels accurate for uh, the character that we'd been introduced to and, and spent a little bit of time with over these past uh, you know, several weeks. Um, Bay the Blood Moon, I, I something tells me she's not making it back to Krakoa. <laughs> I don't know if that'll be the case or not. Um, judging just from like the covers of New Mutants that I've seen uh, that come during the Reign of X, I, ha- I don't think I've seen her on them. So I have to assume that... She's going to be set up as a tragic figure, maybe a sacrifice to help her husband. Um, It seems like the obvious choice, maybe too obvious. So maybe I'm supposed to be thinking that and she'll actually wind up, you know, surviving. But uh, I I guess that'll remain to be seen uh, next episode here. But I think that's all I got to say about our penultimate chapter. I'm really, really looking forward to next episode so we can finally, you know, put a pin in this and... uh, Say we did it. <laughs> we can we can stake our flag in the end of it and say, hey, we 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 covered this entire this entire thing and devoted um, many many hours to it. I think there's probably thirteen or fourteen hours worth of audio about Exosorts that uh, folks can listen to or not, I guess. But uh, that's where we'll leave it for our discussion portion. Uh, let's hop into the mailbag here. We're gonna start with Damien. Who's talking about Wolverine number 7 and X-Force number 14 Damien says I'm going to cover the Wolverine and X-Force two-parter as a singular entity Because it really is I'll start by singing the praises of Joshua Kassara I've been impressed with his work throughout his run on X-Force But often he's been drawing stuff that I don't enjoy Like extreme body horror The sheer variety of locations and characters he has to draw over these two issues is incredible, and he delivers it all with aplomb. His various otherworldly realms feel lived in. Absolutely. Absolutely agreed here. Uh, Kassara, it's it's so weird. Um, Coming coming back home to Marvel, you know, I'd spent a lot of time reading only, exclusively DC stuff over the past several years, so... I'm really like meeting a lot of these Marvel artists because I I hadn't seen these people before. I hadn't seen um, you know Pepe Larraz, R.B. Silva. Uh, I, I knew who Phil Noto was, but I, I'd only seen a little bit of his work. Um, Mahmoud Azrar, I, I was familiar with him, but I hadn't seen his work in a while. And here with Joshua Kassar, I'd never never seen his work before. So seeing it and uh, familiarizing myself with it, it's just been really really interesting, really really wonderful. And I agree that uh, this uh, this story is definitely a breath of fresh air to see his work in because it's not so focused on, on, on like you put it, body horror. Uh, we don't have half-man, half-machines. We don't have half-man, half-plants. We don't have the, the kind of grody stuff that we've been seeing, which, I mean, and gross, I mean that in the best way possible because it's intended to be gross, and Kassara delivers on the uh, on the premise. But uh, here, it's a, it has been refreshing just to see a little bit more of his range um, as it pertains to more, uh, I guess, standard superhero fare. It's definitely very, very impressive. Damien continues. The various contests of champions are really fun over these two issues. Obviously, Saturnine is messing with everyone, but it's difficult to know why. There's no doubt that things are being set up so that the Krakoans lose but don't die. I like the parallels between the two issues, like Ilyana and Pogger Pog facing off twice, and the drinking contest playing into the later battles, particularly Storm vs. Death. Now, I'm glad you bring that up, because 
I was under the impression that our warriors didn't know what the fights were going to be until the cards were drawn. You know, it felt like every so often Saturnine would gather everybody, draw two tarot cards, and it's like, okay, it's going to be the Summoner versus Wolverine, or it's going to be War versus Solemn, or whatever it's going to be, right? But Death seemed to know that he was going to have a fight with Storm coming up. And I, that seems weird. That uh, I, And I, it's not something I'd even thought about until now. That uh, that seems to be a fight that that Saturnine might have tipped them off about. And i got to wonder, maybe it'll become more clear in, in Destruction. Maybe, uh, maybe we'll get a, a better peek behind the curtain at that point. But I wonder if the, uh, the Iraqis had uh, maybe a leg up and uh, knew... Maybe they, they knew who they'd be facing and knew the uh, stipulations and stuff. That's, I guess, I guess it's food for thought. Uh, Damien continues. The montage of the various challenges really amused me. It was a clever idea, as many of them would have been annoying at greater length. This was another scene where Kassara excelled. His work, ex- his work is so expressive that he's telling entire stories in those single panels. Wolverine refusing to take part in the dance-off is totally my energy. And I largely agree. I largely agree. And uh, for as much grief as I've been giving this story for its bloat, um, I will credit them the restraint in not doing a uh, like an entire side series because they very well could have. Uh, we've seen it in AVX versus. You know, I've, I've been bringing that one up a lot because that to me is like the epitome of just like. Grab as much cash as you can from these from these dumb completionists, you know. And, and I was one of those completionists who bought that. And, and I'm certain that they could have done a uh, an X of Swords versus miniseries where they did two or three full um, full battles in each issue and charged us five dollars for the privilege. So I will definitely credit Marvel with a little bit of restraint there. And I agree, Kassara really excelled here. Uh, Wolverine not dancing was awesome. Wolverine not really wanting to take part in the fashion show, also awesome. Uh, That said, there were a few things that were unclear, but I don't think that's Kassara's fault necessarily. We did have that battle under the sea with, uh, I think it was Iska and the White Sword versus Gorgon, and it's like, what in the hell was that? <laughs> was that a fight? Are they all holding their breath? Can they breathe underwater? Is it, is, was it a race? Was it a contest of sorts? Didn't know what it was. I mean, we know what it was now since we looked at the info page, but at the time it was just like, okay, they're just underwater, you know? Also, the uh, the scene with uh, Cable and Magic holding a map. That one was a little bit weird, too, but uh, made total sense in hindsight. But at the time, you know, and these are these are problems with the with the X-lapsed uh, method, I suppose, where I'm trying to analyze as I go along without reading forward because I don't want anything accidentally spoiled and I don't want to I don't want to know anything. You know, I, I don't want to be on the air. Saying, hey, I haven't read Destruction when I read it two weeks ago. You know, that's not how I want to do this. So I, in order to for me to deliver the information as best as possible, I, I felt like I was kind of at a disadvantage for a few of those panels. Damien continues. As I'm sure you can guess, my favorite elements of these issues revolve around Storm. She's my favorite X-Men and gets some great scenes. It's nice to see a callback to the Storm-Wolverine romance in the drinking competition, and then the return to the dance with Death in Blightswill. 
Uh, it is a continual element of the story that the Arachoids underestimate the Krakoans, and this is really on show in the final battle. It's great to see that Duggan has remembered that Storm is as formidable powerless as when she is powered. There's a strong parallel with the first meeting between the X-Men and the Morlocks when Callisto was surprised by Storm's ruthlessness. Even though the, the, the Krakoans are way behind in the scoring, I imagine this, this was the point where the Araconians were, were worried that they might lose. And that's a great point that I didn't really, um, I didn't mention during the uh, Storm and Death fight because honestly I didn't think about it, but it's 100% right. Um, we've seen Storm powerless uh, still with the ability to hold her own and then some. We've seen her fight Kalisto, we've seen her beat Cyclops for leadership of the X-Men while she was depowered. Um, I mean, of course, there were, you know, the Madeline Pryor retcons that uh, were hinted at for that issue. But still, uh, we get to see her here. She drank the Blightswill, so she was powerless, but she was able to beat death. She was able to best death, even without her powers, which really, really cool call back there. And I didn't put two and two together until I, uh, until I read your message. So that's really, really cool. Uh, Damien continues. I'll just end by saying that these two issues were great, but had the worst set of info pages in the entire Hox, Pox, Docs, Rocks era. Someone really needs to stage an intervention on Benjamin Percy. Yes, you are absolutely correct here. Um, this, if I'm remembering correctly, uh, this was uh, the... We had the battle between Wolverine and the Summoner, and it was in, in Blight's wherever the hell it was. Uh, and uh, the way that Kassara played with these panels and the art and the medium was just phenomenal. Uh, like, especially, I, I mean, as a, as a you know, card-carrying fake-ass comics historian, as I am, I loved seeing that half the page was Ben Day dots. You know, it's just like, how cool is that? It's so pointless to folks who don't have an appreciation for comics history. But for those of us who do, it's just like, it's like a metal level of manipulating time. You know, time doesn't matter there. And we're suddenly in like a Silver Age comic or a Bronze Age comic in just a half a page. It's so awesome. And we're just, you're getting into this fight and you're following it and you're just getting lost in this amazing art. You know, we, we see the art goes from like the Ben Day Dots, standard superhero comics, to cave paintings, to abstract art. Just so many pop art. I mean, just so many awesome things. And then there's a damn info page that cuts right in the middle of the action. It's. And all it was was to tell us that, hey, this Blight's place is really weird. It's like, well, no kidding. <laughs> we were just there. I, oh, man, that I, I don't think I've ever been so annoyed by an info page as I was there because it totally threw my focus and it made me just like I was where I was lost in the story and in the art. And I was having so much fun navigating these panels because there wasn't any, there wasn't any dialogue in these. It was just the fight. And the the dialogue, if we will, was the was, was the gimmicks and the and the tricks and the the way that Kassaru was playing with the artistic toys and the the history of the medium and and the history of art in general. And bada bing, bada boom, info page. Ben Percy says, "Hey, this is a weird place. Ugh, the worst, 
the worst. And then there was the uh, later on where Wolverine took Solemn's place, and it's like, okay, so he's taking Solemn's place because he owes him a favor. Okay, cool. So the fight starts, and then boom, info page. Yeah, Wolverine owes Solemn a favor. Thank you, Ben. Thank you. Uh, now Damien wraps up with, anyway, until Britain won't fight to the death to protect a kitten, <laughs> make mine X lapsed. Oh boy, that poor kitten. That poor kitten. I'm glad we didn't see it die. Maybe it didn't die. Maybe it was just to see who would take the swipe. That's that's where my head cannon's gonna go because I don't want to think about a kitten being killed, even even in a uh, contest of champions. But uh, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts on that. Uh, Wolverine and X-Force 2-parter It's always great to hear your thoughts I very much appreciate it uh, We got one more piece of mail we'll cover today And it's from Evan And he's talking about X-Men colon The Exterminated Which was uh, episode 7 of X-Lapsedination Over on the uh, Sunday special Now Evan says Man, I was hoping you were going to tell me Where that Cyclops and Corsair story in, Extermina- in The Exterminated fit in But I guess it doesn't refer to any pre-existing event At first, I thought Scott was being confronted about his plans to abandon Madeline. Don't think I ever read X-Factor number one, though I probably should, if only to imagine what might have been had they gone with the original plan to use Dazzler instead of Gene. Now, what Evan is talking about there is the backup story in X-Men The Exterminated. Uh, There were two stories in that book. The first one was our Cable eulogy, because Cable was killed by his younger you know, cooler self, Kid Cable, in uh, exterminated in extermination number one. So we had the eulogy issue, which featured um, Hope uh, Summers and Jean Grey going to empty out his safe houses and basically coming to grips with everything that went down. The backup was a story narrated by Cable when he was a baby <laughs> about uh, Cyclops and Corsair. So Cyclops kind of learns to accept the responsibility of being a father. And it ends with uh, Cable narrating, saying, you know, this is this is the event that told me that Scott Summers was going to be a devoted father and, uh, father and husband, which, n- no, he was not. And uh, yes, I definitely recommend you check out X-Factor number one <laughs> because uh, it's a... Uh, It'll be funny to actually hear your thoughts on X Factor number one since it'll be you'll be reading it with hindsight and you'll have seen a lot of uh, the attempts to kind of massage that into making Scott a more sympathetic character. Where there, he's mostly um, cold and aloof and really not uh, the devoted husband or father that. He's been painted as being uh, in the years since, so I'd definitely be very interested to hear your thoughts on X Factor number one, if only to see how they contrast with uh, folks who might have read it at the time and me, who's read it, you know, uh, you know, thirty years ago. Uh, I'd really be interested in, in in hearing your thoughts there. And of course, Dazzler was going to be the the token girl character in X Factor until uh, until uh, Kurt Busiek. Figured out a way to bring Jean Grey back And uh, there's actually a, uh, an interview I conducted with Kurt Busiek about that uh, I believe I, I believe it's actually part of an episode of Chris's on Infinite Earths So uh, I'll try to remember to link to that uh, in the show notes I pro- I'll probably forget, but uh, I'll try to remember So as for, like, kind of saying where this story fits in 
it's hard to say because, you know, when you think about it, we just mentioned Storm fighting Cyclops, right? Uh, this was Uncanny X-Men number 201, the first appearance of Baby Cable, you know, Baby Nathan. And in the issue, Cyclops challenges Storm to a battle to see who will lead the X-Men. And Storm, without her powers, beats him. So Scott retires, right? So that was Uncanny X-Men 201, which had a January 1986 cover date. X-Factor number one, where he comes out of retirement, had a February 1986 cover date. (laughs) He was retired for one month. So this story with... uh, with Cyclops and Corsair would have to have happened somewhere between Uncanny X-Men 201 and X-Factor number 1 which isn't quite the isn't quite the window I thought it was. Uh for some reason when I think about Uncanny 201 I think of it as happening way before X-Factor number 1. But no, it was just a few weeks. So uh Cyclops's retirement was short-lived. So if we have to place this story well, it's uh, somewhere in January or February of 1986 cover date So the end of 1985 <laughs> is where we'd put it As for it actually happening uh, You know, it's a lot, of the, a lot of this is revisionist history To kind of, kind of uh, control or manipulate the narrative Of Scott being this doting father Which, I mean, he eventually became But back then, no, no, he was... Uh, <laughs> He was looking for a way out, it seemed. Any time the X-Men wanted him, he would go. And, I mean, all it took was a month. So, that is that. Now, Evan continues. I think it's possible for Cyclops both to have been a good dad and husband for a while and then totally mess everything up. It would be interesting to see someone finally reconcile Scott's usually upstanding, responsible nature with the blackest mark on his record. I mean, who hasn't killed their mentor in a fit of rage while possessed by a cosmic entity? Besides, Professor X did come back. But it could also be a painful exercise that makes things worse if they don't stick the landing. And yeah, I think that's... I think, you know, we talk a lot about continuity, right? And we talked, especially in the Extermination uh, miniseries there, that that was the miniseries where Ed Brisson said, Hey, your back issues matter, you know? This is going to be... Um, this is going to be uh, respectful of continuity. And then we go to this story, which it kind of makes uh, Cyclops's, you know, blackest mark in not, you know, not turning evil as uh, in, into like a Dagwood sandwich here. We're just piling on these layers here in order to massage something out when it is definitely a piece of inconvenient continuity. Right? He left his family. He abandoned his family. And, uh, well, he struggled with that. He still did it. And uh, when he tried calling his family and he found out, you know, he the, the line was disconnected. And then he found out that his the chalet was exploded and they found a redheaded body there. So he's like, oh, she's dead. <laughs> and then he just moved on with his life. It was, um, it was weird. And it is definitely inconvenient. And so with inconvenient bits of history, I find that the best way to deal with it is to not. You know, we don't need to change things to make them more palatable. We just need to stop mentioning them. You know, um, there's a there's a school of thought that, you know, continuity is a prison. And there's a school of thought where continu- continuity is opportunity. 
I'm in the latter, I guess. I'm in the uh, continuity as opportunity sort of uh, school of thought. But I totally understand that, you know, things are written with different sensibilities throughout the ages, and there are things that we don't want to revisit. And so maybe we shouldn't. You know, we could talk about, uh, we can hop across the street to D.C., right? There was a big to-do about the killing joke back when they did the whole Burnside Batgirl thing. Uh, the writers and the artists on that book were saying, ah, that story never happened and not on our watch. And they went out of their way to kind of like negate the whole thing when all they had to do was just not mention it. Because, I mean, the more attention you pay to it, the more ingrained it becomes, not only in the lore, but in the in the fandom. So I feel like situations that are that are inconvenient or that are contradictory to what we're doing now, maybe we just don't mention them, you know? Uh, we don't need to change them, we don't need to contradict them, maybe we just don't bring them up. And I'm okay with that, because I understand what we're dealing with. We're dealing with some very unwieldy stuff here, you know, decades and decades, nearly a century, for some of these characters of backstory. So, kind of is what it is. But uh, I don't know that we need... A, a further exploration of Cyclops' marriage, especially since, I mean, we looked, we look at the publication dates here. It was very short-lived before he came back, so very bizarre, very bizarre. But I, I definitely appreciate hearing your thoughts on extermination and X Men: Colon the Exterminated, and I, and I definitely invite you to check out X Factor number one and let me know what you think here. We can talk about it here in the uh, in the mailbag as we uh, as we move forward. I think that could be a lot of fun. Anyone out there who wants to talk about X Factor number one and the wild and woolly marriage of uh, Cyclops and Madeline Pryor, I'd love to discuss that more. Uh, it, it'll give me an excuse to uh, to reread some old X Factor, and that's uh, that's always a good thing. So that's where we're gonna leave it for today. If anybody would like to write in and talk about you know, anything X-related, anything life-related. Um, I'm, my, uh, my ears are always open. Uh, you could find me a couple different ways. I'm pretty easy to find on Twitter. I'm Ace Comics. And you can shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can find blog posts and show notes over at chrisoninfinitearths.com, which reminds me, a funny thing happened to me while I was posting to Chris's on Infinite Earths. Google told me I owed the money, so uh, I paid the money, and... Uh, now I can proudly announce that Chris'sOnInfiniteEarth.com will be around for at least one more year. So, there's that. Uh, we also have xlapsed dot Chris'sOnInfiniteEarth.com if you just want the xlapsed stuff. Uh, you can chat with us on Facebook, '90s X Men, and you can listen to a whole bunch of comic book stuff at ChrisAndReggie.Podbean.com. Well, that's where we'll leave it for today. I'm totally psyched for our. Big finale. I think this is going to be, if nothing else, it'll be a relief, but hopefully it'll be fun on top of that. So, looking forward to that. I hope you are as well. I want to thank you all so much for hanging out with me for this entire run because, boy, it's been a run. (laughs) And uh, as always, till next time, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya.